In November 2021, in Glasgow, the UK and Italy will co-host the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP26. The COVID pandemic saw the conference delayed a year in order to make sure that delegates can attend in person. You'll be sure to be hearing a lot about the conference on the news and on social media. So today, the subject of our conversation on Mostly Climate is A Bluffer's Guide to COP. Welcome to Mostly Climate, the climate podcast from the Met Office. My name is Doug McNeil and today I'm joined by co-host Dr Rosie Oakes. Hi Rosie. Hi Doug, good to be here. And our guest, seasoned and experienced cop watcher, Professor Peter Stott. Hi Peter. Hi there. So Peter is a science fellow here at the Hadley Centre at the Met Office, an expert on the attribution of climate change and the author of Hot Air, the inside story of the battle of climate change denial. Before we hear about Peter's experience at COP, let's start with some frequently asked questions. So first, Rosie, what is COP? What are we talking about today? COP stands for Conference of the Parties and the parties is well, everybody. So that's world leaders, governments, negotiators, scientists, NGOs, business leaders and citizens. So a lot of people are involved at COP and COP26 in 2021 is the United Nations Climate Conference. Okay, so how many nations attend the United Nations Climate Conference? There are 197 members of the United Nations Framework Convention of Climate Change. So that's a mouthful. It's also known as the UNFCCC. And all of these 197 member states are invited to attend COP. So what's the point? What's the UNFCCC? What was that set up for, Rosie? Yeah, so the UNFCCC was set up in 1992. And the aim of setting that up was to combat human interference with the climate system by stabilising greenhouse gas emissions. Sound familiar? Yes, we're still tackling this today. So that's why COP is carrying on and why it's really important that everybody's going to be there at COP26. So this is the 26th COP. When was the first COP? The first COP was held in 1995 in Berlin. And since then, it's been held in 19 countries, including Japan, Argentina, India and Peru. Some countries have hosted COP more than once. So Morocco's hosted COP twice, Poland's hosted three times, and Germany is the winner, laying out the welcome mat on five occasions. Okay, and why the UK this year? So the UK has presidency of COP this year. So the presidency sets the agenda and does a lot of behind the scenes work in the run up to COP, working to ensure that there's a good environment to secure a global agreement or to have conversations around climate change. Okay, and what is special about COP26? Yeah, so back in 2015 in Paris, the world made a critical agreement. Every country agreed to work towards limiting global warming to well below two degrees with an aim for 1.5 degrees. Each country committed to plan to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, something called a Nationally Determined Contribution or NDC. And they agreed to update those plans every five years. So this was delayed. This was meant to happen in 2020. It was delayed due to COVID. So now is that time. Everybody's going to get together and we're going to hear about what different countries are going to commit to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Thanks, Rosie. So can we have a little bit more detail about the aims of COP26? Yeah, so with so many people in a room, we're going to have to try and unite around some common goals. So there are four main aims of COP26. 
the first is mitigation. So the goal is to secure net zero emissions by mid-century and try and keep 1.5 degrees warming within reach. At 1.5 degrees C of warming, you have reduced impacts relative to a two degrees C warming scenario around the world. So this will include things like phasing out coal, reducing deforestation and investing in renewables. So you mentioned net zero there, and I think we'll come back to net zero later in the programme because that's a really useful concept. So the second thing that we're working towards is adaptation. With ongoing climate change, communities and environments are going to be threatened. So we need to adapt to protect people and communities. So this will involve building physical barriers, making sure that infrastructure is resilient and setting up warning systems to keep people safe. So all of that sounds like it might be quite expensive. Yeah, we're going to need some money in order to both mitigate and adapt to climate change. And so the third goal is to mobilise finance. And the UK think that in order to achieve these goals, developed countries have to mobilise at least $100 billion of climate finance a year. Okay, and what's the last, the fourth goal of COP? The fourth goal is to work together to deliver. Global climate change is a global challenge. And we can't just solve it as one or two countries. And that's what's really exciting about COP. You have 197 countries in one room having these conversations about how we can solve this global challenge together. Thanks very much, Rosie. And I think this is a really good time to bring in our guest today, Professor Peter Stott. Thanks for coming, Peter. It's really nice to see you. Sure. Very interesting to talk about COPs and my experiences. My first COP was way back in 1997 in Kyoto. And I was only a year actually into my career as a climate scientist, a year since I joined the Met Office Hadley Centre. And I had this amazing opportunity to travel there. And of course, Kyoto was a groundbreaking COP because it's where negotiators agreed to sign the Kyoto Protocol, which was the first international agreement to actually start reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So it was wonderful to be there to present the science in those days. And actually, the Met Office Hadley Centre has been to every single COP. I actually remember learning about the Kyoto Protocol at school. It was in our GCSE geography textbook, so it's really cool to have met someone who was there when those big conversations were going on. So have you been to all of them since you went to Kyoto? No, I've not been to them all. I've been to six altogether. Uh, but colleagues of mine have been to, you know, between us, we've, we've been to them all. I guess what I've seen over the years is how they've changed. I mean, back in 1997, we thought at the time it was quite a big conference centre, but actually, looking back, it wasn't that big. We had a table in the foyer, we saw the negotiators going to and fro, we saw the government ministers going into rooms behind us, and we had a big pile of brochures and we had a very clunky old PC that we presented our latest science on. Actually, it's worth saying that that science, the very basics of the science we presented there has not changed, that the greenhouse effect uh, exist, that that means that if we put, as humanity is doing, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, then the world climate will warm, and that will then lead to effects such as impacts on agriculture, impacts on flooding, for example. All of that was set out in the brochure that we had back then, way back in 1997. What we've done since, of course, in our sciences, we put a huge amount more detail on those initial projections. But just thinking back about COP, the most recent one I went to was the one in Katowice in Poland in 2018. And that was a huge, huge affair taking place in a sports stadium, in a massive conference centre, in huge tented structures. So the whole thing has grown enormously over those years. If it's grown, but you say the science was kind of approximately the same back at the, at the first one that you went to back in the 90s, 
What's changed? Who's turned up to COP these days that wasn't there in the first one that you visited? Well, the core of the people there, if you like, the people at the centre, I mean, they've changed because potentially, um, you know, new people have come into the roles, but the roles haven't changed, I would say. It's still representatives of the governments, the civil servants, if you like, the negotiators. And it's also, of course, the politicians who often come in at a certain key point of the negotiations to actually do the final deal, to push the deal over the line. And those people still come to the meetings. I would say that what's changed in terms of the numbers is that there are far more people, representatives of civil society, lobby groups, the media, all sorts of people concerned about this issue. And the number of those people have grown. And that's why these affairs are so much bigger than they used to be. And what's the atmosphere like in the room? Is it very formal? Is it quite casual? Are there spaces for informal conversations? What's it like to be there? It's quite an extraordinary atmosphere, actually. I mean, Kyoto was quite extraordinary to be surrounded by negotiators. And you could tell the tensions rising, the excitement rising, to be honest, back then, that that an agreement was in sight. And, you know, it never stops. So I would be there from nine o'clock in the morning till sometimes seven or eight o'clock in the evening. But we'd also know that people will effectively be working through the night to try for that agreement. And that hasn't changed since. But I mean, over the years, there's been the sort of ups and downs of progress through these COPs. Um, you know, there was the low point in Copenhagen in 2009 when everybody was expecting a big global agreement and it didn't arrive. But then there was the high point of Paris in 2015 when the landmark Paris Agreement was signed. So there's an air of sort of fevered activity, I would say. But there's a lot of conversations that go on in the margins. There's a lot of presentation of the science. There's a lot of people just meeting in corridors and chatting. And, you know, you never know who you might bump into, who you might see. I mean, at Katowice, that was the first cop that Greta Thunberg was present at, for example. I saw a tweet the other day, and I must find the attribution, but I thought it was quite apt. Somebody said that uh, a cop is a bit like a wedding and that there's an awful lot of preparation that goes on beforehand. But without the ceremony, it doesn't happen. So have you been party to some of that preparation? And what's the difference between the preparation and the ceremony, if you like? There's lots of preparation. That's absolutely right. You know, from the actual, a bit like a wedding, just booking the venue and getting everybody there, which is a huge deal. All of us, when we go to a COP, we turn up and we have to go through big security processes. There are guards from the UN to ensure that the whole thing is secure and everything. But also there's the point that the discussions and the negotiations are going on year round, actually. And every year, traditionally, Certainly pre-COVID, there's been a preparatory meeting in Bonn in Germany halfway through the year. And in order for a COP to be successful, it's not just the venue and all of that needs to be sorted out. There also needs to be all of those discussions and preparatory preparations in terms of what's going to be discussed exactly at COP that need to be put in place. Because at the end of the day, what these meetings are trying to do is agree a document with words. And if you just turn up cold, you're not going to manage it in a few days. So that's a very important part of it as well. That's really interesting that you say that this document being important. You mentioned Paris, Peter, there. I know that Paris was seen as a real success. We had uh, the commitment to these nationally determined contributions. These are really about limiting climate change, about mitigating against the worst effects of climate change. We mentioned net zero and how important that is to limiting global warming. Could you just explain net zero and these NDCs, these targets um, that we're trying to get to and that COP26 is aiming for this year? Thinking about net zero, for me, we have to think about what it's there to do. The groundbreaking agreement in Paris had two groundbreaking elements for me, one of which was all the nations of the world agreed together to commit to do something about climate change. 
And back in Kyoto, actually, it was the developed world that agreed to do something, which is fair enough because it's the developed world that created the problem in the first place. But the other aspect of this is that unless everybody joins together to do their bit appropriately and equitably, then we're not going to correct climate change. The other crucial point made in Paris was this agreement that everybody signed up to to limit global warming and to keep it basically to well below the levels that the science has shown would lead to very serious and dangerous effects in terms of things like our ability to feed ourselves as a species or our ability to protect ourselves from widespread flooding, for example. So this is what the Paris Agreement says, to keep global warming to well below two degrees Celsius relative to pre-industrial levels and ideally to keep it one and a half degrees. If you're going to do that, the scientific findings also tell you that we've basically got to eliminate humanity's emissions of greenhouse gases altogether. We've got to get ourselves to zero emissions. But then the net zero comes in by the fact that to do that, to eliminate all our emissions entirely is incredibly hard, effectively impossible, unless we find ways to draw down some of those emissions out of the atmosphere. Now, actually, the natural world does this naturally. The trees draw down CO2 emissions, the ocean does. But if we're going to crack climate change, we would need also to find additional ways to draw down carbon. And that's why we talk about net zero. I should also say that that can't be the main way that we crack climate change by drawing down emissions. We've got to limit the emissions going there in the first place. That's the main point. But we're still probably going to have to draw some down as well. And hence, this is why we need to get to net zero emissions. Okay, so net zero means we're still going to emit some CO2, but we'll find other ways to draw down that CO2. So it's a combination of reducing those emissions as much as we can and then trying to find a sink for the ones that we can't find a way to stop emitting. That's right. And we do need to do both to have a realistic chance of cracking this. That's right. And my understanding is that uh, the latest AR6 science report, we had a podcast on that um, previously, so listen to that. Uh, We were talking about this that at net zero, approximately net zero, you stop warming where it is. That's right. And there's this remarkable result in science, actually, that says that the more you emit, the more the world warms. It sounds it sounds rather straightforward, actually, doesn't it? And and, but given the complexities of our planetary system, it's in some ways remarkable that it is effectively that simple. But it really is. So in other words, to stop warming, we have to stop emissions. That simple result, which makes it in some ways simple to think about it, also, I think, underlines the the challenges ahead. We do have to eliminate those emissions to stop that warming. And the reason we need to stop the warming is because the greater the global warming is, the greater the risks of really, really catastrophic climate change in effect. You know, the ability of, of agriculture to function, the ability of communities living around the coast to stay where they are becomes um, very limited. So that's really why this matters. So how does this tie in with COP? I mean, I know at the Met Office, we've been having conversations about reducing international travel to reduce our footprint as an organisation. Is the pressure at COP for people to attend remotely rather than in person? And are there other things that are put in place by the COP organisers to make sure that this conference has as low a carbon footprint as possible? Well, of course, COVID has given massive challenges to everybody, including the organisers of COP, and the meeting has already been delayed by a year, but it's simply not possible to delay it further because of the urgency of coming to agreement at this current meeting. However, what has been agreed is that people still need to meet in person, particularly the negotiators. And I think that's reasonable because it's really only when people get into a room together that these really tough negotiations have the best chance of succeeding. 
However, having said that, there will still be quite a lot of hybrid elements to the meeting, particularly to, to all of these side events, all of the events that surround the meeting. I will be going to COP and some of my colleagues will be going too to present our latest science and to talk about the implications for policy, but we'll also be bringing in people virtually. We'll, so we'll have these sort of hybrid meetings and hopefully we can get the best of both worlds, bring people together as we need to do, but bringing in communities from all around the world. Because the other aspect of this is so important that voices from civil society all around the world, from all the continents of the world, are engaged and are able to, to get their voice across. That's a good point, Peter. And some countries are more vulnerable than others and they need a voice, clearly. That's right. Many countries in Africa, of course, are particularly vulnerable to the effects of climate change, partly because of the impacts of climate change on that region and partly because of issues to do with their vulnerability to weather as it stands, even without the weather getting worse, in effect. Another group of states who are very vulnerable are the small island states, the low-lying island states, who face effectively an existential crisis of whether or not their countries could even survive considerable climate change due to sea level rise. So it is very important they have a voice in COP is on the whole pretty good at ensuring that because it does require consensus, it requires everybody to agree. And I think another thing that I've noticed actually just being involved in the intergovernmental panel on climate change in various rounds is also the capacity of scientists around the world is increasing all the time. And I think that's because we're sharing on those. Here at the Met Office Center, Centre, for example, we've got a lot of projects working with colleagues from Africa and many parts of the world and that's about sharing our knowledge in both directions, actually, in terms of their own expertise in other parts of the world from the UK. And then you're also sharing the expertise that we have. And I think that's really helping, actually, nations all around the world get their voice across because, among other things, their case is very well grounded in the scientific information. Such a global challenge. And obviously that fourth aim of COP was that, you know, everybody needs to work together on this challenge. And so it sounds like that combination of in-person and hybrid means that we'll have a lot of different voices in the room. And those diverse voices often come up with quite creative answers to these big challenges. They do indeed. And I, I think the other point to make is that with that diversity as well comes innovation and comes hope at the end of the day for me. You know, when you look into the science of all of this, maybe initially you feel or I feel a bit down because of the implications of what would happen if we don't tackle the issue. But then I also see a lot of possibility for being able to keep global warming, as the Paris Agreement says, to the levels that the Paris Agreement talks about, well below two degrees. But it's only going to happen with innovation. And I think absolutely right, Rosie, with that diversity of views to enable that innovation to happen. But I think there's a lot of hope that it can, providing that all of us effectively just keep going at this and keep working at it. So, Peter, you mentioned earlier on, we were talking um, that the science hasn't changed. The fundamentals of the science haven't changed through time. I'm really interested in the role that scientists play within the negotiations. You said that the Met Office uh, Hadley Centre has been at every COP. I'm really interested in how our science feeds into the negotiations and how that might have changed over time and what you see the role of science today. There's one very important way in which science feeds into the negotiations, which is through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And you talked about your recent episode that was looking at the sixth assessment report. And I've been very heavily involved in that. Many of my colleagues have in terms of developing those assessments. And that is the most authoritative, thorough assessment of what the science is saying and drawing out also that science for policymakers. And actually, the way that works is that there's a meeting where those reports are agreed that involves governments 
And it's not their role to tell the scientists what the science is, but it is their role to help the scientists better communicate that science in a way that's meaningful for policymakers. So the negotiations in Glasgow will absolutely be taking account of the latest assessment from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And that's probably the most important way in which the science influences the negotiations. But I think also let's not forget the way in which scientists from different countries will be talking to their policymakers. And, you know, here in the UK, we're talking all the time to our colleagues in government who are particularly engaged in taking that science and informing the negotiations. And we'll also be doing it during the Glasgow meeting to make sure in particular that it's not just the, the global assessments that they're taking account of, but it's also the implications in particular countries that countries are taking account of. So, for example, here in the UK, you know, the Met Office, uh, we do a huge amount of work advising government about the implications of climate change for the UK. And that doesn't just mean, incidentally, the sort of weather we're going to have in the UK. It also means how global weather might affect us in the UK. And that's also an important part of the discussion. And of course, it's a very important part of the discussion also for many developing countries who really need to be able to express to the negotiations what further climate change will mean for them and for their people. So would you say there's been a move as well towards informing adaptation to the climate change that we've already seen and that we may well see, given that we can't just stop global carbon emissions immediately, we're bound to see more climate change. So has there been a move towards informing adaptation? Both of those things are tackled in, in the COP meetings and will be tackled in Glasgow. But you're right that the adaptation side of the agenda is at least as important as it's ever been. And, and part of the discussions will be associated with ensuring that there is sufficient funding provided so that the more vulnerable nations have funding that can enable them to adapt to the climate change that's coming. As it, as it happens, I think these two aspects, mitigation, which is about reducing emissions, and adaptation, which is about making ourselves more resilient to the emissions we already have, are actually quite closely linked in the sense that the more that we make ourselves more resilient to climate change, the better things will be for us. For example, maybe our health will improve because of the way that we do things. Maybe the air quality will improve because we, we've got less pollution in the air. And all these things sort of interact so that, yes, they're very much combined together in these discussions and will be a very important part of Glasgow. So, Peter, as a scientist at COP, you mentioned that you'll be talking to politicians. Do you have a schedule before you go in or do you just sit and wait until somebody has a question about the science and then answer that when it comes along? Yeah, well, great question, Rosie, because we have both, basically. We'll have a schedule of, of events and we'll have like formal events where we'll provide talks. And then between those, my experience of COP is that you can get called into all sorts of meetings and discussions that happen serendipitously. And the other aspect of this, of course, is, is the media. There's a lot of media attention at COP because uh, the media are very interested in knowing about the progress of the negotiations, but they're also very interested in knowing about the science. One of the aspects that often collides here with the whole thing is, is extreme weather events. And, you know, they really show us, whether it be hurricanes or typhoons or floods or devastating heat waves, they're really showing all of us how vulnerable we are and how important this is. And that's often one of the aspects that I get drawn into because of my scientific expertise is about talking, whether it be with the media or with policymakers about some of the extreme weather that's happening around the world. And that's often happening even during the COP meeting itself. So Peter, you're an expert on the attribution of climate change. 
Could you talk a little bit about some of the things that have happened in the last year, some of the scientific discoveries that are being communicated in the last year? Because we're getting a lot more talk about extreme weather and how it's caused. That's actually part of the motivation for wanting to write a book about it is actually to sort of trace the story of that science as it's developed from those very early days when I was, you know, when I went to Kyoto back in 1997, whereas as, as I was saying, it was very broad brush about the global warming and what's developed since is much more clarity about what that means for our weather. So way back in 2004, I wrote a paper, which is the first study to say that there was a link between the European heat wave of 2003, which sadly resulted in the deaths of many, many, probably over 70,000 people in Europe as a result of that heat wave. It was the first one to say, well, we could make a link between that and climate change by thinking about this aspect probabilistically. So thinking, has the risk of an extreme heat wave like that changed? And that science has developed enormously, actually, and it's developing really rapidly even just in the last year or two. So we're starting to be able to make these sorts of connections, not just with heat waves. And we've had some extraordinary temperatures recently. We had almost 50 degrees Celsius in Canada earlier this year, for example. But also we've seen some very devastating flooding in Central Europe this year, for example. We're also seeing more intense tropical storms. And we're, we're starting to be able to say much more definitively how climate change is affecting these types of extreme weather event. And it's not the case that we never had extreme weather before climate change. We certainly did. But what's what's becoming ever clearer is that climate change is making extreme weather events both more intense and more frequent. And therefore, there's a huge effect on people as a result of that. And are politicians aware of that? Will they be aware of that during these negotiations? They will be very aware of that. They'll be very aware of what's going on in their own countries and they'll be seeking scientific advice from their own scientists, actually, if, wherever they are in the world as to what's going on in their neck of the woods and you know in the UK we, we do a lot of uh, briefings and give a lot of information to government about what's happening about our own weather here in the UK from Met Office scientists so they will be very aware of that and that is a huge driver of the urgency of the problem I would say because it is so um, I was going to say visceral in a way I mean it, it's in our climate models we, we're really now pushing the boundaries of representing the impacts of extreme weather but when it's actually happening on the ground, then those impacts are, you know, we can monitor them, we can see them. And sadly, we can see often see the effects in terms of, of deaths or injuries or, or the huge economic impacts. There's no gain saying that in, in effect. You know, it's very visible. It's something that politicians have to deal with, have to deal with in terms of talking to their own people. So it's a very big driver of the negotiations. That feels like something that's really happened really recently this direct linking people being able to see climate change happening in front of them rather than being something that happens in the far distant future to their children or grandchildren. It feels like that's really changed in the last couple of years. It has really changed for me in the last few years. You know, I've been struck when I've met people who've been affected. I mean, for me, one of my most um, memorable and affecting experiences actually was was a, a few years ago now was was in 2013 when I went for the very first time to Australia for an intergovernmental panel on climate change meeting and it was actually in Tasmania and it was just after there'd been some devastating fires that had ripped through some of the communities in Tasmania and I actually met one of the families whose home had burned down in minutes actually seconds they they had very little time to escape to be honest I was actually struck also by his or, or their sort of um, positivity in a way that, you know, determination to keep going and to rebuild. But I think the other thing that brought home to me about all of this was that all around the world, we are used to extreme weather, but we're not 
used to our weather being pushed into greater extremes and it's true in Australia it's also true in the UK where maybe not so much fires but certainly flooding we're used to flooding but we're not prepared to have that flooding pushed into ever greater extremes and I think people's realization about that is a big thing that's changed and we're seeing more and more of this as each year goes by so it really feels to me like coming a little bit back to the science the signal of climate change, the signal that we talked about back in Kyoto in 1997, that was a bit more of a scientific hypothetical, if you like, has now become real. We can really see it very, very clearly. And how do you feel about that as a scientist and as a human? You've been working on this since 1997, having these really important conversations, and yet we're still tackling these same challenges today and you're really seeing the impacts of climate change. How do you deal with that? In some ways, it's not easy, actually, because it feels, you know, was it worth it? Has the science that I've been doing, has it been worth it? Has it changed things? On balance, however, I, I feel it it has, um, because in terms of the process, in terms of people's engagement, as we talked about, that has changed hugely from how it used to be, actually, even only 10 years ago, and that's hugely positive. In terms of the way people are actually starting to change what they're doing including myself you know in terms of thinking about how we heat our homes or you know i've got solar panels for example or how we go to work a lot of people have really started to think about this in terms of my own conversations with people i you know friends and so on um so that is hugely positive in terms of the overall negotiations like at cop i'm a bit more ambivalent about it to be honest but i'm still very hopeful that things can change and so i think that for me is the crucial point that we're starting to see things changing. For me, I need to see the sort of geophysics changing. So in other words, I need to see the, the things that I predicted back in the 90s, which have indeed come true. We now need to start seeing those predictions which assume continued emissions going wrong now. We need to start seeing my predictions being falsified in effect because we're on a different trajectory than we were assuming back in the mid 1990s. That's what I would really like to see. I would like to see that too. I hope we can falsify your predictions. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Yeah. What should we be looking for if we're hopeful about the COP process? What should we be looking for in COP26 in terms of a global agreement? The agreement signed in Paris back in 2015 very explicitly talked about upping ambition. So Paris was a start. There are these nationally determined contributions which talk about the ambitions that the governments agreed to do. The initial promises, if you like, are not sufficient. So what we're really looking for now is, and I say not sufficient as against what the science is saying we need to do if you're going to, to meet the original Paris goals of keeping warming to well below two degrees Celsius. So that's why they're not sufficient in that sense. And therefore we need to see greater ambition, basically. We need to see countries setting out their vision for how you know they're going to meet these ambitions. And that's what we really need to see. I mean, actually in the UK, we have something called the Climate Change Act, which legislates in a way that the government needs to look at what the Climate Change Committee, which is an independent body of experts, is saying. And so there is a pathway that's been set out by the Climate Change Committee in the UK towards doing just that, towards upping those ambitions. But the first step in Glasgow is to see all of the countries agreeing appropriately and equitably, because it's, you know, there's a different responsibilities here depending on the rich world versus the developing countries, for example. But nevertheless, we need to see that helping of ambition. Great. Thanks so much for coming on. A last question. What are you most looking forward to about going to COP this year? I'm most looking forward to, first of all, talking about my science, but most importantly, really, is, is seeing my science acted upon in the broadest sense. So that level of engagement with that science, what it says, the urgency of the issue, 
and then ultimately seeing that translated into action in terms of the nations upping their ambition and saying, yes, we're going to urgently tackle climate change. So Rosie, what are you looking forward to from COP this year? What are you looking out for? Yeah, so after the COP in Paris, where countries committed to trying to keep warming under two degrees C, I am so excited after six years of thinking about this, what are governments from around the world going to bring to the table? We've just had the new science from the IPCC. We know exactly what we need to do. We have people from all around the world coming to join in this global conversation, bringing diverse perspectives. And I think we can really tackle this together as a global challenge. So I'm really excited to see what everybody's bringing to the table. Great. I'm really excited also to see what happens. I think it feels like one of those processes we've talked about tipping points before in Mostly Climate, where suddenly you've got a long, slow change and you hit a tipping point and suddenly everything starts moving. And I think it, this feels like this COP feels like um, 2015 maybe of the start of a tipping point and that we might see this accelerate towards a, a global solution on climate change. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens at COP26 as well. That wraps it up for our Bluffers Guide to COP. My thanks to co-host Dr Rosie Oakes and our guest Professor Peter Stott. You've been listening to Mostly Climate. The producers were Claire Nazir and Graham Madge and the editor was Adrian Holloway. Mm-hmm.